If you can keep that open, Matthew 13 will be where we're going to go today. Um, I want to remind you that we're going to have a Q&A at the end of the sermon. So if as we're going through, uh, things aren't clear, uh, that'll be my fault, but you can ask me questions and I'll have a tent to, to, uh, to try and clarify uh, if, I, if I can. Uh, that'll be helpful. So please remember we'll do that um, at the end, of the, uh, the end of the sermon. I'm going to pray for us and ask that God would help us to understand uh, what's just been read and that it might make a difference for us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are present uh, here. We thank you, Father, that your word, which has been read, is living and active. And I pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would cause us to understand what its meaning is, and that by understanding, we might be faithful and fruitful. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right. Today we're doing, uh, as part of our Jesus is series, we're doing uh, Jesus is Irrelevant. That's, that's an answer, isn't it? So you can say, we're asking our friends, Jesus is, how would you finish the sentence? Someone might say, Jesus is irrelevant. Uh, the way that we're going to attack it, is the way I've been doing these, uh, these sermons uh, myself, is we're going to walk a little while in that mindset. What would it look like if you thought Jesus was irrelevant? We're going to consider what the Bible has to say, and then we're going to work hard on, what, if that's true, what should we do uh, with that truth? So let's start with uh, a little bit of walking in the worldview, at least as, as, I've, uh, I've, as I've understood it. So what would it be like if, if your answer was, Jesus is irrelevant? Let, let's think about that uh, a little bit. I think there are two broad ways that you can think about why Jesus is irrelevant. Uh, there's a passive side and an active side. Now, I'll see if I can explain them uh, to you. On the passive side, I think we were having a bit of a chat in our life group through the week. I'm just saying, hey, who would say Jesus is irrelevant? Why, why do you reckon they'd say that? And we're sort of saying, well, at some level, you say to someone, I go to church on Sunday, and they go, well, why would I bother? Right? It, it's not a very uh, sophisticated thing, but it's just more passive. Right? You do that. Excited for you. Why would I bother? What, why would I bother? There's, there's nothing there for me. I, I'm just, why would I bother? Secondly, maybe we could get people who would be also a little bit passive, but say, look, I'm too busy. I, I can't really fit uh, church into my weekly schedule. And um, I, I don't know, I, I, think, I think I'm a bit too busy is, is a little bit of an interesting answer. Um, I'm too busy, perhaps, uh, worshipping at my other temples, uh, kids' sport, Bunnings, or my pillow. Now, now, when I say that, what, what I mean is there'll be some people who say, well, look, I'm too busy to go to church on Sunday. This is the only day I have off. And at some level, I can respect that. Like, if you're working uh, six days a week and you get this minor little break, this is the only day you have to your family, maybe that kind of makes sense. Incidentally, that's why we started our evening service, come back at 6 p.m., fantastic, but okay. Um, so you might be worshipping on, on your pillow on Sunday morning. Fair enough. Uh, some of us kids sport uh, it just seems to be taking up every part of everybody's uh, days or maybe I'm worshipping at my home renovation temple Bunnings now I, I think that's Jesus is irrelevant it's irrelevant because I can't be bothered or because I'm too busy I think that's a major default for most people there is a more active version though Jesus is irrelevant because I'm feeling strong today my life is working okay I'm doing well Jesus why would I add a Jesus in when I've got this world, I'm sorted, I'm doing great. Maybe, maybe I don't need Jesus because I'm feeling strong. Maybe I don't need Jesus because I feel sinful. And what we mean by that is 
there's something I know that morally lives in this building here, right? Some God stuff kind of lives in this building and I am definitely not going there because if I chose to think about it in those categories and I reject those categories, I would go there and I'd feel bad about myself, right? And I don't want to feel bad about myself. I've convinced myself I'm doing okay. When I activate my inner lawyer, I go, there are, there are much worse people in the world than me. I'm not doing anything really sinful. But if I go there, someone will tell me what I'm doing, the way I'm living my life is sinful. I'm not going there. Maybe it's I'm feeling superior. By which I mean, hey, look, I'm a little bit better than some of those people who need God. Okay? I'm actually, I'm psychologically together. I'm nailing my work and my family. I don't need any of that stuff. I'm feeling pretty superior. Or maybe you just simply want to say, I'm steering this ship and I don't need anybody else to have their hands on the wheel. Okay, I'm in charge of my life. And I remember this way back in the midst of teenage angst. So, okay, this is... Uh, but I, I remember um, after I'd become a Christian relatively early in life, I remember someone saying to me, do you trust Jesus? I remember saying, Yes. Do you trust Jesus? I think I just answered that question. The answer is yes. And then, so this is teenage angst, so forgive me. But do you trust God with your HSC? And I remember sitting there going, no. Now, teenage angst, okay? But what, what the way it worked was, I'd work my backside off. I'd work really hard, and I figured well, God might mess it up. I don't want to give him any place in that. And so I thought I was trusting God, but I wasn't. I was far, far more happy steering the ship my own way. So maybe you're feeling Jesus is irrelevant for a passive or an active reason. I think the passive reason is apathy, just too much to think about. I'm too busy, I don't want to fit it in. And the active one, I want to observe this, I think the active one is moral before it's theological. Okay, what I mean by that is, I've decided something about how I'm made up that means I reject the idea of God as opposed to I started by thinking about everything to do with God. I came to a conclusion about the rightness or wrongness of a deity in the universe. And then I thought to myself, I'm going to reject him. I think we start off with, God would be inconvenient for my moral life and therefore I'm going to reject him. And then after the fact, we build in a set of structures that say God is irrelevant. Do you see, it's moral before it's theological. Are you with me? Okay, so it's passive or it's active, but Jesus is irrelevant. I just want to ask this question as we do this. What is it about relevance? Why does Jesus need to be relevant? Shouldn't we be concerned if he's actually right? Are you with me? Like re Relevance is such an interesting thing. Is it relevant? Is it hip? Is it cool? Is it no, that's all ridiculous stuff. I want to know if it's right. And so if I turn it into a question, and this is what we're going to spend some time looking at this morning, question, is Jesus concerned with his own relevance? Is Jesus concerned? Is he up there fretting, wondering whether we think he's relevant or not? Relevance is everything, isn't it, these days? I love that. Secret to success, being relevant. And then we've got wonderful things like relevant faith church and relevant church. This is people who are struggling hard to say, hey, world, unless you think we're absolutely at the cutting edge, we're going to feel a little bit left out. And I want to suggest to you, Jesus isn't sweating about whether he's relevant. I want to give you two examples as to why I don't think Jesus is sweating on whether you think or I think he's relevant. He had some prohibitions in the gospel, which are really strange. He told a bunch of people after he did things to them, don't tell others. Right? Now, if you're dying to be relevant, what do you tell people? So he just healed somebody, right? Just healed somebody. 
And he says to them, don't tell anyone that this happened. Now, tell you what, guys, if I'm looking to be relevant and I just raised a dead 12-year-old girl back to life again, my first job is to get a tweet out and then see if someone can Facebook that and maybe I can get an Instagram of the room where she was... Whatever, right? I'm wanting to make it as relevant as possible. But here's Jesus saying, don't tell anyone. That's odd for someone who would be apparently about relevance. And then there's the parables, which we're going to look at today. Parables are really odd. They are not plain. I don't know if you've noticed this. They aren't plain. See, Jesus could have said, I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You'll find me in Isaiah chapter 53 and in in David and and the promises in 2 Samuel 7. And if you could just get your stuff together, let's go to Jerusalem. You can enthrone me and we'll overthrow the... He could have spoken very, very plainly if he'd been concerned for relevance. Instead, he does this bizarre thing where he speaks to us and to the people at the time in parables. Why? We're going to consider what the Bible says in answer to that question. Why parables? Why is he seeking after relevance? So so why parables? I want to give you four reasons, I think, that we see in the passage here as to why Jesus speaks in parables. The first thing is to intrigue. Who doesn't love a good story, right? And so uh, such large crowds gathered around him, we see uh, in verses 2 to 3 there, that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. See, if I've got to entertain the crowd, I want to tell a story, right? So here's a massive crowd of people. What am I going to do? I'm going to tell a story. So he hops in the boat and gets on with the storytelling. I think he does it to intrigue. Second, he does it to invite, but he doesn't do it to invite everyone. He does it to invite a subset of people. He tells them, if you look at, if you got that open there, I think it was page uh, 978. If you've got it there in front of you, you can see in verse verse 18, he says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. Who is he talking to at this point? He is not talking to the crowd. He is talking to a small set of his disciples who have come together around him. And they've said to him, sorry, what, what did that mean? And so he draws them in. He invites them in and says, listen, I'm going to tell you what it means. There's an invitation there. The second two reasons are a little bit more surprising, perhaps. He does do it to reveal truth. So he speaks in parables to reveal truth. Uh, We see it in verse 11. He replied, so they've just asked him in verse 10, why do you speak to the people in parables? Helpful, that's our question. Verse 11, he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. He does want to communicate. He does want to reveal the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. That's him talking about his reign as the king. He does want to reveal it, but he also wants to, I think very shockingly for us, conceal it. He does want to conceal what he is saying. Have a look at verse 12. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to the people in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. So we go, hang on, hang on, Jesus. You're telling the parable to reveal the truth, but you're not planning to reveal it to everyone. You're actually planning to keep it a bit secret at the same time. So what are parables? I want to suggest to you that parables are two-level stories. 
they've got a, a, a story level and they've got a kingdom meaning level. There are two level stories that mirror reality. They speak to what actually is. Concealing the truth in the telling and unveiling it to seekers with additional revelation. It might be overly speechy, but here we go. Here's what I'm saying. You can listen to the story and get it. Ah, a sower went into the thing and scattered some grain. Does everyone understand that? Yes, it's about grain and farming. Great, don't throw it on the path. It'll work out badly for your crop. The end. Until Jesus says, actually, this is about the kingdom of God and the seed is the word of God. And now you've got revelation informing a story that otherwise was just a story about farming. Are you with me? So it's concealed on the outside and it's revealed to the insiders with additional revelation. So it's cryptic in public and made, made clear in private. Do you see that? And Jesus says, I'm speaking like this all the time. So let's look at that sower parable, that really famous sower parable. Have a look at what the intention of the farmer was in verses 3 and 8. In verse 3 we see, 13.3, uh, Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. Why does a farmer sow seed? What's his plan? Grow a crop. Excellent. Outstanding. Isn't it amazing that 2,000 years later this story is still relevant? We know what it's about, yeah? If you're sowing seed, you're not looking to build a garden. You're there to grow a crop. And we see in verse 8 that that was the intention. Still other, other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Okay, so what was the farmer's intention? The farmer with, with fruitful intentions sets out to sow some seed. Okay, no problems. Let's have a look at the detail a little bit. Let's have a, have a think about the points. And we're going to do this with each of the parables we're going to look at today. We're going to see what are the points in the parable. In verse 4, we can see that the seed can be snatched. Birds can come and take it. In verses 5 and 6, we see that the seed can be snuffed out. When the hot weather comes, it withers because it has no root. In verse 7, we see the seed can be smothered. Thorns grow up around it and choke it and it dies. And then we see at the end, in verses 8 to 9, the seed can be superabundant, which I needed to get an S out of, so you'll bear with me. Superabundant, it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. So what, is, what happens here is, in the, in, the, in the parable, we get snatching, snuffing out, smothering, and then superabundant, the thing that was intended. All right, so what's the message of the kingdom? We actually don't know the message until Jesus tells us. So we need to look at verses 18 to 23. Let me read it for you. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed that was sown on the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So here's the thing. Jesus says, the word of God is the seed. And when you add understanding to it, you get faithfulness. That's the thing. 
Understanding the word is what this is all about. And it goes on to add, it's a battle out there. So you might think it's a quaint thing that I do, that I pray before I preach, right? Why do I pray? Aren't we all prayed up? We're in church. It's a pretty safe place to be preaching. Why do I need to pray? Because I want to pray that when the word of God goes out, you sit here and don't just hear it, but God helps you to understand it. If you listen, that'll be the same thing in my prayers every week. Theme and variation, but that's what I'm praying for. God, would you help us understand this word? Because in that is faithfulness and it's a battle out there. The evil one could snatch it out of you right now. I don't know what he's talking about. I'm tuning into what I'm doing next weekend. It might be that persecution comes and the way you started, you've stopped because you're under, under the pump somewhere. Or it may be that very insidiously, wealth and worries are choking out the lively place of God's word in your life. Or it could be, hey, there's a harvest going on and you're hearing the word, you're understanding and you're bearing fruit. I want to tell you about a really cool news story I heard um, this week, uh, uh, week, a couple of weeks ago, in Guatemala. Anyone know where Guatemala is? Yes, good. Well done. If you don't, Google it now. Of course, that won't distract you at all. Uh, Below Mexico. Okay? That's kind of where we're going. Now, uh, there's lots of ruins there. But the problem is there's lots of forest there as well. Okay? And some people did a really cool thing where they flew over the forest with a plane or a drone with a laser in it. Now, everything about lasers is cool, and drones are cool, so that's great. I'm loving the story already. What they did, though, when you shine the laser down, it actually cuts through the jungle and reveals all this stuff that's hidden underneath the jungle cover. And what they've found is 6,000 buildings that are scattered across the whole of Guatemala that no one has found before. They were hidden, covered over with the forest, and now all of a sudden they're having to rethink the whole understanding of the Mayan civilization. They're now thinking instead of 5 million people, maybe there were 10 million people living in this place, highways, fortresses, temples, all hidden. Isn't it incredible when you go looking for treasure, what you can find? What you can find, admittedly with a laser, which is pretty good. Come with me, have a look with me at uh, chapter 13, verses 44, uh, verse 44. Jesus goes on to explain the kingdom. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. What are the points in this story? The points in this story is that there's treasure and it's immensely valuable. That it's hidden. So you have to go searching for the treasure. Now this makes sense, doesn't it? If you have treasure and it's sitting on the surface, how long does it hang about for? Very good. If you're unexperienced with a treasure, don't leave it on the surface, okay? That'll be bad. So it's hidden, right? But somebody goes looking for a treasure, and when they uncover it, so they have to find it. Thirdly, we see they found it. Who found it? Someone who was seeking treasure. A treasure seeker found the treasure. That's not rocket science, but there it is. And then the fourth point is this treasure is so valuable that what they did, it's beautiful, In his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field so he could have the treasure. What's the message? The message is that this hidden kingdom that you can't see right now, this hidden kingdom that seekers find, this hidden kingdom, when found, will be worth giving up everything for. What does that mean? When I speak to you today about relevance right now and you go, wow, the kingdom of heaven, is it relevant? I'm saying to you, it's hidden. It's not on the surface. 
It's not immediately accessible. It won't be found by the apathetic. It's hidden. But when you find it, it'll be worth giving up everything. I was reading about pearl diving this week, and you'll see why in a second, but pearl diving, amazing. Uh, helmets are like uh, 30 kilos. Uh, you go down under the ship. When they first started doing it, they had hand pumps uh, in, in, uh, in Australia where they're pumping air. You want to make sure you've got some strong blokes who are doing that while you're down the bottom. Um, your shoes weigh up to 18 kilos each to keep you on the bottom. Because your helmet's so buoyant, you need to wear other weights to stop yourself popping back up to the surface. If you pop up too fast, you die from the bends. In Australia, in Broome, 29 people have died purling. In fact, a guy died three years ago. Why? What is it about pearls? They're immensely valuable and beautiful things. Have a look with, this, uh, with me at verses uh, 45 to 46. Uh, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. What I want you to see, pearls are rare. You know how they're formed? A little bit of sand gets into the mantle of the pearl. It gets covered in nacre, N-A-C-R-E, nacre. Turns into this beautiful, um, I'll show you a picture, they're amazing. Pearls from all around the world have different colours depending on where they're growing. They are still valued today. They're absolutely beautiful. In the ancient world, the time Jesus read, no one's farming pearls, you'd be surprised to know. They're finding pearls, and because you have to find them natively, they're incredibly rare. And so when you find a big, beautiful pearl, it is of immense value. It was actually said that uh, one of the Roman soldiers, uh, one of the Roman um, uh, commanders, financed one of his military campaigns by selling one of his wife's earrings. Hilarious about what happened to his home life, but, uh, but you know, it, it gives you an idea of how valuable these things were, right? So Jesus tells this story. What are the points? The first point is there's a merchant. They're a professional seeker, right? A merchant went out. What was he chasing? Pearls, most highly prized jewel in the ancient world. He found one. And I want to say to you, the one that he found was one I'm thinking that only a pro could truly appreciate, right? He finds one pearl. I'm sure he found a million pearls. He was, he was going around to all the markets, right? But he found one pearl. And when he found that pearl, he sold all that he had because it was worth everything. And I think it's incredibly noteworthy. See, what's the merchant's job? Why does a merchant buy pearls? He buys pearls to sell pearls on a small markup and profit, probably a very considerable markup or profit. But I want you to see this. This pearl is so beautiful, is so essential for him. He has such an eye for pearls that he decides this one is... It's a keeper. It's a beautiful story. It's appreciated by the seeker, by the one who knows the value of it. And he says, I, I'll give up everything for that. He does it for personal joy and not for profit. So what's the message? This hidden kingdom, this kingdom that you can't see today, when found, will be worth giving up everything for. Will be worth giving up everything for. So, so why is Jesus relevant? Why is Jesus relevant? I, I want to suggest to you, really honestly, perhaps he's not now. For some of you, perhaps he's not now. 
And, and I could, I, I, we're going to come back next week. We're going we're to continue to tell you why I think Jesus, he, he's absolutely the most important thing in my life. He's the one I've given up everything for, right? I, I want to convince you that Jesus is relevant. But if I stand here today and say, here are all the benefits of Jesus, I'm kind of missing the first point I want to get across. The first point I want to get across is that some of you sitting here will not find Jesus to be relevant because you haven't started to seek him. And if I go really hard after you and I tell you, Jesus is amazing. He's like the best steak knife set you've ever found. Here's all the benefits. And you can get a free couch and a holiday overseas and a jet ski if you... I want to say to you, I'm not going to persuade you of that today. If I spread out all the wonderful benefits of Jesus and you're not a seeker, it'll bounce off the surface. That's what Jesus is saying. I want you to come back and there are no steak knives. There are persecutions. But there is great joy. And I want to show you why Jesus will be relevant. He will be. He will be. And it'll come up in this next parable. I was, um, I, I'm not much of a fisherman. I don't know if you guys are fishermen. I, the, the worst thing about fishing for me is if you actually caught a fish. I like this. I don't mind that at all. I could do that all day. But if I actually caught a fish, I don't, I don't want anyone to know about it, right? Got to gut it and kill it. I don't Scary. Anyway, some people like this, right? But if you get more than one fish, you're in for a bit of a problem. You've got to try and work out what to do with them. Have a look with me at verses 47 to 50. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The net was let down and there was a dividing of fish. What are the points in this story? Well, the net is let down at a point and then it's pulled back up when it was full of fish. There's a time coming when the net will be full of fish. Secondly, good fish are those that are, de are deemed useful to the fishermen, but there is a second category which is called bad fish and they're regarded as worthless and unfit and they're discarded. What's the message? Jesus gives us the interpretation because otherwise it's just a fishing story, isn't it? Remember I said we need to get the revelation. So what's the revelation? The end of the age is coming much as it doesn't appear to. Terms just started. It would be very inconvenient if you came back today, Jesus. Lots of people have prepped a whole lot of things. But the end of the age is coming. It says here the angels will do the dividing. This is not a second parable. Jesus is speaking about the reality. He's saying the angels will do the dividing. He's saying that the dividing will be the wicked and the righteous. That'll be the separation, the wicked and the righteous. And he says this incredible thing. They'll be throw them, throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, church, I want you to know I take absolutely no pleasure in observing this. But Jesus tells us that the place of the furnace won't be just annihilation. It'll be ongoing suffering. Why does he tell us that? He wants us to hear and to understand. He wants us to not be found in the net. What, what was it like before the net was pulled up? I tell you, it's just like going around here in Bunnings when I'm, I'm using, or going to shops. Or, or what? Because the fish swimming near me don't know there's a net that's been let down, do they? Do you? 
everyone around me is just another fish swimming along. But there will be a day when the net will be picked up and they'll be divided left and right, righteous and wicked, and they'll be separated forever. Is Jesus relevant? Well, I can't make him be relevant to you, but one day he'll be desperately relevant because we'll be divided on whether we are standing with him or against him, whether we've been washed clean by him or whether we're shaking our fist in his face. I want to say to you today, you can say Jesus is irrelevant, but there will be a day coming where he will be shown to be relevant, where he will be shown to be relevant. So what should we do if, if that's true? Well, here's the impossible application. You can't continue in apathy. You've heard the revelation this morning. This is the reality. You can't continue in apathy. It can't be that you don't care that there's a net coming. No net neutrality is. Let the reader understand. What's the possible application? I want to suggest two possible applications. First of all, if you're here today and you haven't worked out who Jesus is, don't stop. Get curious. Get curious about Jesus and the kingdom and come and find out with us who he is. The thing I tell people all the time when we do Jesus for the Curious, I say, come and bring your adult brain along. You're probably rejecting Jesus on the basis of decisions you made when you were a kid. Bring your adult brain along. Read him for yourself. If you reject him at the end of four weeks with us reading the Bible, all I will say to you is, I respect you. You've now made an adult informed decision as opposed to you just going through the flow in in apathy or because you didn't like your scripture teacher. That won't be good enough on the final day. Get curious. Secondly, I want to say to those of you who are Christians... Consider how productive your soil is being, right? Jesus is looking for some, there are 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. Are you being productive with the seed of understanding the good news that has been sown in you? Work out the kingdom if you're here as someone who doesn't know yet, or if you're a believer, be working out the kingdom. Here's the necessary application. Apparently, this is one of the largest uh, round pearls uh, around the place. They're worth an absolute fortune. Consider how you're valuing the kingdom. Jesus told two parables back to back, which are about how much you value the kingdom. I want to suggest to you, your ability to give the message of new life is proportional to the value you see in the kingdom. So if you're here today and you'd say, I'm, I'm absolutely a believer, that's me, I'm a believer. I would say to you, right, is Jesus on the nice to have list or is he on the give up everything because I'm all in for the kingdom list? And I would say to you, if he's on the nice to have list, your ability, your ability to say to someone else who is in apathy land, gee, you really need to get Jesus into your life. It's gonna ring really hollow. And so if you're here today and you've come with someone who's brought you along and you're thinking, I'm not sure I see that passion, I want to say, I'm sorry about that. Jesus presents us with a picture of the kingdom that is so compelling that it should have my life, my soul, my all. And I want to say to you guys that when we get it, you'll be a much better ambassador giving the message than if you think he's a nice add-on. Jesus is very relevant let me pray heavenly father you know our hearts you can see right through all the posing 
all the supposing, all the stuff that we would put on for other people. You know exactly where we are this morning. Father, I ask that you'd have mercy, that this word that we've heard today, we might understand. Father, we might be prepared for the day when you pull up the net. And I ask that you might help us to be found righteous in you. The only hope we have of standing on that day because you've loved us and you've forgiven us. Amen. Okay. Q&A. Give you a moment to get warmed up. Uh, questions, things you want to clarify, stuff that I might not have said as clearly as I could, things you'd like to come back on, say, ah. someone got a question for us to start. I've always struggled with this parable because um, God sows the seed on different soils. Yes. And this, he still casts it out on the path, yes. knowing that it won't take. Are the paths our hearts and our situations? And can someone who has a seed thrown on the path yep. somehow still hold on to the gospel? Yeah, great question. Um, I th- <laughs> I kind of wrestle with the details a little bit because we don't, thanks Jeff, because we, uh, we don't do much sewing. Do you do much sewing? Uh, I think the idea is that today we do it with a tractor and it'll all be very contained and probably it's got a GPS on it and a whole bunch of things. What you end up doing uh, is you've got a big sash around your, uh, around your shoulders. It's filled up with grain like this. And the way you do it is you're chucking it like this. Okay? You're throwing it. Now, I think the intention isn't let me label, uh, uh, lay up heaps of seed on my uh, path and in the rocky ground. I think this is a farmer, wants to get good productive outcomes from it, and so most of the soil is tilled and it's ready and he's throwing it, I, most of it goes there because he's not a bad aim, right? But just by virtue of the way that you fling the seed out, right, some of it will go on the path, some of it will go on the rocks. And so so uh, long answer round, I don't think the first intention is to say, um, I'm hoping that the seed path, the seed on the path um, really prospers. It's just, it's got to a place that's hard, it's not going to work out. Um, the scary part about that, though, is we go, yes, yeah, so what about the people who are hard path people? Is that kind of where our question kind of gets to? Um, I think he's saying there's a, when, the, when the word is received, that's the time when the path analogy works. So at that time, here's the word. Today is a, is a seed moment, right? Seed's gone out. Some of you are paths. Some of you are rocky. Some of you are good soil. That's what's happening. It's not that there's one chance in your life and you're a, you're a path person, you're a rocks person. It's when the seed is cast out, it will have different effects depending on how people receive it at that time. So I'm not saying everyone is invariably a path person or a rocks person or a thorns person or a good soil person. I'm saying respond to the word. Okay, that the word has been cast out today, let it, let it do its work. Does that make sense? So I'm hoping today there's some nice furrows in the middle, and you guys, in, particularly in the middle. Okay, hey guys. Particularly in the middle. Don't worry about you guys on the edges. A bit sketchy. <laughs> Throwing some seed at the back. Um, no, no, no. But so, so I think we can have more hope than that. I don't think it's just one go and you're done. I think it's every time the seed is thrown out, there'll be receptive places and there'll be harder places. Okay. Another question? Yep, over here, Peter. Stuart, a real challenging question. Uh, we, we believe and we're taught all the time that God is love. God loves sinners. doesn't matter how bad you are. God yeah. loves you. And I'm always puzzled by the question, 
when does God stop loving you? When does God stop loving you? Yeah, then, then you read, you know, you're in for a bad time if you don't become a lover of God. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a great question. So how do we reconcile... Uh, well, it, it depends, Peter. Are we going for the, the parable of the fish or are you just asking more generally? Well, I think the, the gnashing and... Uh, yeah, <laughs> the okay. Teeth, you know, it's yeah, not, that, that's it's good. Not, it's not like next week, it's internal. Sure. Uh, let me just quickly... Uh, th- there's no easy way to deal with that. First thing is, God is love. He loves us. And if we want to know if he loves us and if he wanted to save us... Was it easy? No, incredibly costly. The interesting thing is, I think in the end, I'll do a quick thought experiment with you. I think in the end, we want everyone to go to heaven. Is that right? Would that be right? Please tell me. I think that's what my heart would be. We want everyone to go to heaven. Uh, We want God to love us enough to respect us. Would that be true? Yes. Okay, good. I don't want God to make bad things happen to good people, all that sort of stuff. So in the end, what I want God to do is I want God to respect me enough that I can know that he really loves me. The cross tells me God absolutely loves me and hell tells me that God absolutely respects me. Bear with me. If God compels everyone to go to heaven and some of those people hate him and don't want his love in their life because they're happy running life their own way. They're shaking their fist in, their, in his face because they hate him, because they don't want the idea of God in their life. And he compels them to heaven. Hasn't he been a tyrant? Are you with me? If I have a God that compels everyone to go to heaven, he is forcing against their will, rebels into the place of eternal existence with him, which is the last thing they want. The scripture tells us, he loves me enough to respect my choice and he'll give me what I want. I don't ever want you in my life, God. Be gone from me. I hate you. He says, you will have that forever. Now that's devastating but it's loving. Okay. Follow-up question? Probably. No? Okay, we're done. That's enough. That's thermonuclear. Okay, good. Uh, look, uh, uh, I, I want to, uh, we're going to deal with, um, with God and injustice and pain and a whole bunch of stuff. We've got far more sermons coming up in this series and I don't want to steal everyone's thunder. Um, but I do, I do want to say to you guys, you need to think carefully um, the, uh, this, this is just a, this is a bonus piece of information. Uh, who, talks about, who talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible? Does anyone know? Jesus does. Why does Jesus talk about hell more than anyone else? Well, number one, he knows it's true. Number two, he doesn't want you to go there. And if I don't tell you about it and it's real, then how loving have I been? If I tell you about it, and li- listen to this turn of phrase, okay? In plain sight, I want to scare the hell out of you. Yeah, that's right. Does weeping and gnashing of teeth sound horrific to you? Yes. What do I pray? Make heaven, I mean, make hell empty, Lord. Save everyone. Don't let anyone who's been here today walk out of here trusting in themselves. Turn to Jesus who died so that you don't have to go there. You want to know how loving he was? 
to death for you. It doesn't mean it's not real. It means he doesn't want anyone to go there. Uh, I'm going to pray, sit down, and Luke can take us home. Heavenly Father, your son Jesus is desperately relevant to this world. Father, I pray that you'd forgive us when in our apathy, our busyness, our inattention, we've treated Jesus like a plastic bead instead of a pearl. Father, help us to see the worth and the value and to be utterly sold out to treasure his place in our heart. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.